All right. Three, two, one. Oh, my goodness. Good morning. Good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Uh, man, I got my flannel. Enjoy the background. The background behind me is about to change very soon, for better or worse. People are going to hate it at first because anytime you change anything, people get mad at you. They hate it. Uh, if you're listening on iTunes, don't worry. There's nothing will change for the, you at all. The show will be completely the same next episode as it is today. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you'll be like, Zach, the new background's dumb. I hate it. I know. People don't like change. Accept it. Um, today's episode is dedicated to week two of the XFL. That's where I want to start. In my opinion, week two of XFL football was actually better than week one. I watched all four games. I absolutely loved it. I, I'm act, I would even make the claim it's very possible I've watched more XFL football than any human being on planet Earth. I'm weird because... You know, I watched all the games Saturday, Sunday. I went to one of the games. I was in Seattle. There was 29,172 people there in the stadium. Gosh, it was so much fun. Uh, I, I want to say, by the way, thank you to the XFL and the Seattle Dragons. They were great hosts. Um, but I would challenge people. You know, I'm weird. I didn't just watch all four games. I went back and watched them a second time because I wanted better notes. I really wanted to be able to dive into this stuff. Um, I, my belief is that media coverage of the XFL is going to fall off as the weeks go on because people don't understand the media is kind of arrogant towards the XFL as if they have to earn the right to be covered. I don't know. I, I really, again, I look at how many people showed up in Seattle. There's almost 30,000 people in Seattle at the game. I see social media. I hear all the messages I'm getting. There's a market for the XFL. Is it the NFL? No. But it's a great fan base of people, and I'm going to cover it every single week the way I'm doing today with an entire episode weekly dedicated to the XFL, going through each of the eight teams, talking about what's going on. It's a great experience, man. I'm not being paid to say this. It's a really good experience to go to a game. It's affordable. It's fun. Now, in my opinion, and I really recommend if you can go to a game, go to a game. It's a great time. Now, in my opinion, the two best teams in the XFL are the DC Defenders and the Houston Roughnecks. They're phenomenal. Now, it's not a coincidence that they are the teams with the two best coaches and the two best quarterbacks. You in D.C., you have the head coach, Pep Hamilton. He's phenomenal. Uh, then you have the quarterback, Cardell Jones. In Houston, you have the head coach, June Jones, a longtime college coach who's got a great offense, and the quarterback, Philip Walker. So Pep Hamilton is a great communicator. I love him. He's a great play caller. And what stands out about the D.C. defenders is how well they execute. Now, June Jones is a great play caller as well. And what he does well in Houston is he does a great job making adjustments, whether that's in-game adjustments or week-to-week. Uh, it stands out the way they use a guy named Nick Hawley in Houston. They thought he was a running back. They weren't sure where to put him. They used him all over the field. And that's because June Jones was adaptable enough to say, hey, we got this really talented player. It would be a shame to put him in a box and put him in one position. They use him all over the field. Now, both June Jones and Pep Hamilton are phenomenal for their football teams. They're so good at putting their teams in a position to be successful. Here's why D.C., though, is a slightly better football team. By a very slim margin, uh, D.C. is the best team in the XFL. Not only is it, you know, first of all, the reason why D.C. is better is because of their defense. Both teams, D.C. and Houston, have a great coach, great quarterback. 
DC's defense is even better. The DC defenders, man, it's kind of ironic that's their name because they play really sound, really good defense. Now, the next question would be, okay, DC is the best team in the league. Who's the best quarterback in the league? In my opinion, I think it's pretty clear. I don't think this is really a gigantic argument. You could make an argument for Cardell Jones in DC. To me, the best quarterback in the XFL is Philip Walker. He's phenomenal. Philip Walker, PJ Walker, whatever you want to call him. He's not perfect. He's not. But he looks like Russell Wilson running around behind the line of scrimmage. He is so good at using his legs to create throws downfield. He can escape the pocket. He can move around within the pocket. He moves around and uses his mobility to throw the ball downfield. He's not Lamar Jackson. He doesn't run to get yards. He runs between the sideline to sideline, behind the line of scrimmage, keeping the play alive so he can throw the ball downfield. He's got a great arm. He's only 24 years old. He's a possible NFL quarterback down the road. Now, here's a really fun question. The two best teams, D.C., Houston, the best quarterback, I think the best coach is Pep Hamilton, June Jones is right behind him. But who is the third best team in the XFL? This is where it gets really, really fascinating. To me, it's either St. Louis or L.A., or Dallas. For me, it's Dallas. Here's why. Yeah, yeah. so Dallas is 1-1, one and, one, and you would go, well, how can a 1-1 one and one team, they're not, they're not undefeated, how can they be in the discussion? And how can LA, who's 0-2, be in the discussion for the third best team in the league? Uh, you got to realize, first of all, Dallas just got starting quarterback Landry Jones back from an injury. He's only practiced three times all year, twice last week leading up to a game. He practiced once at the beginning of the year, got hurt, didn't practice for months, like a month and a half or something, and now two practices, then he played his first game. And the first game for Landry Jones in, with Dallas, it was in L.A. technically, but with Dallas, was rough. He was not great. But I'm telling you, when you watch him play quarterback for Dallas, he was made to run Dallas's system. He had an ugly game in week two, but as the year goes on, he's going to get better and better. And it was, I'm telling you, it's very interesting that the quarterback for Dallas was awful last week, week two, against the LA Wildcats. Landry Jones left a lot on the table, and yet still they won. And week one, with a backup quarterback, Dallas almost beat St. Louis. That matters. What that says is, hey, this is a really competent football team, well-coached. Good defense, good offensive line. They can run the ball well. Dallas is a great all-around football team. And as Landry Jones, their quarterback, gets more reps and settles in this season, they're going to get better and better and better. And their ceiling of any team I've watched this year, Dallas is probably has the highest ceiling because of Landry Jones. We've seen the best from D.C. It feels like we've seen the best from Houston. There's a lot of room left to grow in Dallas. Pay attention to the Dallas Renegades. Now, L.A. is really solid, too. They haven't won a game yet. They're 0-2. A lot of people are like, oh, how could you talk about the L.A. Wildcats? Well, it's a similar situation to Dallas. The L.A. Wildcats starting quarterback week one, Josh Johnson, was injured. So Josh Johnson was injured week one. He missed that game. Came in week two. He's phenomenal. He's great. Josh Johnson is a savvy veteran quarterback. We'll talk about him later in the segment when I talk directly about the L.A. Wildcats. But he does so many little things right that really make L.A a competent football team. I think they're, they might not be the third best team. They're probably the fourth or fifth battling with St. Louis, but LA should not be discounted. They're 0-2, but don't let their record speak for their football team. They lost a tough game to Dallas, and 
they're better than they were week one. Now, St. Louis is interesting. Here's why St. Louis is, I think, the most fascinating football team in the entire XFL. First of all, they're one and one, and they have a lot of potential. But they have two really big, glaring problems with their football team. Uncomfortable problems. Problems I don't really, I don't love. I wish I didn't have to talk about. Number one, they're really stubborn. They are a stubborn offense. They keep running the ball into bad situations. It drives me nuts. The defense will play a defense which sends a lot of defenders close to the line of scrimmage. Let's, let's say I, I saw, for example, there was a situation uh, last weekend against Houston where Houston had eight defenders in the box. What that means is Houston had eight defenders right around the line of scrimmage to stop the run. St. Louis only had seven guys to block eight, and St. Louis still ran the ball. It was a bad situation. They were not set up to succeed, and they still did it anyway. St. Louis will not adjust. It's so weird. Whether they, they need to either have an RPO, which means that they can, they can see, hey, the box is loaded. Let's throw the ball behind the defense. Or they need an audible system to change the play. Now, the second problem is a lot more nuanced and even more interesting Jordan Ta'amu, the quarterback of the St. Louis Battlehawks, is terrible when you blitz him. Teams play man coverage and then send the blitz, and he tries to scramble and run away rather than sitting in the pocket and throwing the ball against the blitz. When you're blitz, what the, and by the way, what a blitz is is when a defense brings extra defenders after the quarterback. It's a numbers game. If you blitz six, there's only five guys dropping into cover. There's only 11 guys on a football field at one point. So the more guys you bring after the quarterback, the better it is for the passing game because it creates one-on-one matchups and makes it better to throw the ball downfield. Jordan Ta'amu hasn't figured that out yet. He doesn't understand that a blitz is actually a blessing. He tries to run away and scramble and gets caught. He plays right into the defense's hands. What he needs to do, stand in the pocket, find his best matchup, and throw the ball. There are multiple times, especially against Houston Week 2, where Houston would play man coverage, send a blitz, a guy would be open over the middle of the field running a shallow crosser, and Jordan Ta'amu wouldn't get rid of the ball. He would panic and try to run rather than throwing the ball against the blitz. Houston will have a lot more success if they do two things. they got to fix their two problems. They have to adjust to the running game. If a defense is playing Eight guys in the box to stop the run. Don't be stubborn. Change your approach. Throw the ball. Do something else other than trying to run the ball up the middle into a no-win situation. And number two, they got to teach Jordan Ta'amu how to deal with a blitz better. He's got other little problems. Timing's interesting. But the big glaring issue with Jordan Ta'amu is he needs to do a better job handling a blitz, standing in the pocket, throwing the ball to his best matchup rather than trying to run away and playing right into the defense's hands. Now, I have a couple other thoughts after week two. Uh, Number one, the refs are phenomenal. I love the refs in the XFL. I love the transparency. I don't know. Uh, And it seems to me that the refs are straight up just better (laughs) in the XFL. I don't really understand. It makes it more noticeable to me just how bad the NFL refs are when I watch the XFL because they just seem to get everything right. And even when they get it wrong, they call it out and they acknowledge it and they overturn it. There's like no ego here. Egos don't seem to get in the way. It seems like the XFL refs just operate with a value on common sense rather than 
You know, they're, the goal of the XFL ref is just to get it right. They don't care about anything other than our job is to make it the right call. How do we get this right? And when they're wrong, they have video, they overturn it, they're very transparent about the whole process, they have a microphone on the guy in the booth reviewing things. I am so in love with the way the refs operate in the XFL. Number two, kickoffs have been more fun. I'm just going to say, I, the way I watch football, I do this every week, I record about eight games going on. This is during the NFL season, I mean. I'll record about eight games during the NFL season, and I, I fast forward through commercials because I don't want to watch commercials. It drives me nuts. And what that means is that regularly, I skip kickoffs as well because kickoffs are just touchbacks. They'll usually literally come back from a commercial break, have a kickoff, then go back to commercial break. And the kickoff that they go back out of commercial break to have happen is just a touchback. It's a wasted play. That no longer happens in the XFL. First of all, it's safer. I really like that I, I'm not watching guys run 60 yards and destroy each other anymore. It's safer. It's now more of a scrum because of the new rules. And the new rules are phenomenal, but they also encourage kickoff returns. I like watching kickoff returns. They're fun. They're interesting, especially now that they're safer under the XFL rules where it's more of a scrum than a long sprint into just nailing each other. I don't know, man. It's a huge success. The new rules are phenomenal with the XFL special teams. And uh, I watched the LA-Dallas game. There were a couple big returns. It was fun. I'm telling you, man. Kickoffs are phenomenal in the XFL. I'm a huge fan. I also got to point out that the tech has been surprisingly great in the XFL. The XFL is heavily reliant on headsets. Everybody has a headset. No, that's not true. Way more people in the, NFL, in the XFL than the NFL have a headset in their helmet. The way that plays are called on offense is through a headset in the helmet. That's not the case in the NFL. In the NFL, only one guy has a headset. And to this point, we haven't seen an issue where a guy can't hear the coach or there hasn't been any technical errors through two weeks and eight games into the season, that's incredible to me. Not only are the players able to hear the coaches every single time, they also have done a good job navigating. There are moments where a coach is getting interviewed on the sideline through the same headset he's using to call the game, and that hasn't caused a problem or interference either. It's really impressive. The execution with technology in the XFL deserves a lot of respect. They're doing a great job. I have one final thought, though, after week two of the XFL. Uh, and by the way, any, you, you watch on TV, first of all, before we get into the final point. When you watch on TV, there are little hiccups here and there where it's clear that you know, announcers are still talking over coaches when coaches are calling plays. and It's not quite the smoothest it will be, but it's only week two. We're two weeks into the XFL season. A lot of people are critical this is terrible. This is bad about the broadcasts themselves. And some of it is directors directing the broadcast are still figuring out the rhythm and the flow of the XFL. It is slightly different directing an XFL game compared to directing an NFL game or a college football game because of the access, the unprecedented access where you can listen to the headsets and listen to the broadcasts and listen to the coaches calling plays. That type of stuff has never happened before. And so I think what we're seeing in the XFL is directors of the broadcast that are learning the flow of the game and learning how to do it. But I'm telling you, by week eight, it'll be a much, it's a good product on television right now. It's going to be an even better product eight weeks from now at the end of the year. 
They're just going to get better and better and better. Week two is better than week one. Week five will be better than week four. Week six is going to be better than next week. It's going to just keep getting better and better and better as the year goes on. Now, my final point after two weeks of the XFL is, and, and I hope you understand the way that things work. If a team scores a touchdown, they have three options. They can go for a one-point conversion from the two-yard line, a two-point conversion from the five-yard line, or a three-point conversion from the 10-yard line. There are three possibilities for what a team can do after they score a touchdown. And kicking is not an option. Teams have been horribly, horribly ineffective with the conversions after touchdowns. They have not been able to do anything effectively. And nobody seems to have much of a plan or much of a strategy. It's very interesting to me. Uh, Teams look kind of aimless. They score a touchdown and they're like, well, uh, let's call that play. Like, there's not a, a plan for how to execute a two-point, three-point, or one-point conversion. And I get it. You know, on the list of priorities, like when you're at practice and when you're scheduling a game plan or getting ready to beat a team, your plan, you're more concerned about getting into the end zone, period. Teams are far more concerned about getting touchdowns than what to do after a touchdown but I'm waiting for the coach that finally cracks the code and has a good, solid game plan of how to score points on the goal line. So far, it's been incredibly inconsistent. Nobody has a plan. Nobody seems to know what they're doing. Um, And I would make a recommendation for me personally. I think that the two-point conversion is the best deal in the XFL. If you score a touchdown, unless you need three points, I'd go for two every single time. Because a one-point conversion is really close to the goal line. It's on the two-yard line. That actually isn't great. You'd think like, oh, you're only two yards away. Logically, that doesn't actually make, I guess maybe that's your logic. It doesn't necessarily make sense though. When you're on the two-yard line, you're actually really crowded. Defenses have the advantage because they have their back to the wall. They can worry about everything in front of them. It's actually a lot easier to play defense on the two-yard line. Now the 10-yard line, the three-point is too far away. On offense would have too much room to work with and 10 yards to go is too far. The Goldilocks zone, the perfect area to try to get a conversion from is the five-yard line. That's the two-point conversion. If I was an XFL team, I would go for two every single time, and analytics would support that. So far, I I don't have the stat written down. I apologize. It's very similar, though. It's like the percentages from two points and one point are basically the same. And if you're going to – if in theory, you have the same – possibility of getting a one-point conversion as a two-point conversion, go for the two-point conversion because if you're going to fail, you might as well fail trying to get two points rather than just one point, especially if the percentage is the same that you're going to have success or failure. So in my opinion, more teams need to go for two-point conversions. That's what they should go for every single time. I think teams are still learning. What's our approach? What are we trying to do? What is our game plan here? Teams still clearly have no idea really how to approach the extra point conversions, and it shows. It shows, I mean, we've only seen one three-point conversion converted all year, and it's very, very telling to me. So, guys, uh, those are my thoughts after two weeks of the XFL season. I love it. I'm having a blast. Uh, I'm going to be at every single Seattle Dragons home game unless something changes. I got a a season pass from the XFL. They're great. It's two hours from where I live. It's so much fun. And you know what? I was going to go into P.J. Walker. We'll talk about P.J. Walker in a minute. But first, I want to jump into that idea. I want to talk about going to an XFL game. Uh, so I just want to say, um, this past weekend, I went to an XFL game. It was awesome. It was so much fun. I went to uh, the Seattle Dragons were hosting the Tampa Bay Vipers. 
And number one, I have to say thank you to the XFL. Thank you to the Seattle Dragons. Uh, they put me up in the press box. They were very gracious hosts. They were phenomenal. Um, and I got to say, man, I had a great time up in Seattle. Uh, they're about two hours. The Dragons play about two hours from where I live, two hours north. I live in the Portland area down south. And uh, man, it was fun. 29,172 people showed up for the game. 29,172 people, uh, fans. The crowd was huge. It was so much fun. Uh, I even went down and I went, I came down from the press box and walked along the concourse and I chatted up some people. I talked to some people, shake hands, shook hands. And uh, it was, everybody had a blast. It was a good time. People loved it. I loved it. I was there. The atmosphere was there. It was loud. And it's clear to me, not only are, do fans want, like I think the media is undervaluing the XFL. Fans clearly want this. Um, but it's also a great experience, man. Um, you know, I also got to just watch my former high school football teammate, Marcel Frazier. He got a pick six. He plays defensive end for the Dragons. And, you know, a, a defensive end getting a pick six is so rare. And he was excited. He was thrilled. It was awesome. I got to talk to Jim Zorn, the Dragons head coach, after the game. It was uh, a pretty sweet experience all around. Uh, now, the XFL didn't pay me to say this, but I do want to be very, very clear. Um, so, yes, the XFL let me into the game for free. Uh, if you want to take what I say with a grain of salt, do it. But, man, I got to say, uh, I really recommend if you can go to a game, go to an XFL game. It's so much fun. It's way more affordable than the NFL. It's a blast. It's quality football. Uh, I, I just, man, I, I think the XFL's done genuinely a great job making it a good experience for the fans. People at the games, really, I enjoyed it. People there enjoyed it. It was a good time. Uh, I, I went to an, a, you know, an alliance. There was that other league, the Alliance of American Football. I went to one of their games in San Diego. And it, it just wasn't the same. The XFL had energy, uh, passion. It was there. The crowd was into it. And the, the game was faster. It's more fun. I mean, I'm telling you, the XFL has done a phenomenal job making it into a great product. And uh, I'm going to be, again, I'll be at every single Seattle Dragons home game unless I have like a family emergency. I'll be there. I'm going to go to a New York Guardians game, not this weekend, but next weekend. I'll be at MetLife Stadium. Uh, I love the XFL. It's phenomenal. And if you see me at a game, please say hi. I'd love to meet you. I I love the XFL. I'm a huge fan. And uh, they've done a great job making the game day experience a really, really good one for their league. All right. Um... I want to. I'm going to drink a, a a drink of water. I want to get into the best quarterback in the XFL. So, in case you don't know, PJ Walker is the best quarterback in the XFL. He's phenomenal. Uh, he's got crazy good stats. He has like seven touchdowns through two games. But stats are not the story. Stats are not the reason why I get so excited when I watch PJ Walker. Touchdowns are great. I would feel the same way if he had two touchdowns and they'd gone to the goal line every single time and maybe the running back had a bunch of touchdowns. The point is productivity. When you watch P.J. Walker, there are so many little things he does that make him a great quarterback. Uh, the dude has a great arm. He's very accurate from the pocket. He's got ball location that's phenomenal along the sidelines in perfect spots where only his guys can catch the ball. He can throw a touch over top of linebackers. It's really it's a tough ball to throw when you're throwing the ball at the intermediate level up and over a linebacker, but comes down quickly enough that a safety can't get there and make the play. He's got a really strong arm. He can dial the ball into tight windows downfield. Now, the thing, though, that makes him special, P.J. Walker, I want to be very clear. 
P.J. Walker is a mobile quarterback. He's not a running quarterback. We're going to talk about the thing that makes P.J. Walker special, which is, in fact, his mobility. He needs his mobility to succeed, but he's not a running quarterback. He's a throwing quarterback who can run. He runs to throw, and that's a huge, gigantic difference, and I want you to pay attention to that difference. He's not just a guy who's a freak of nature athletically. He plays the quarterback position at such a high level with tremendous, tremendous feel. He's so great at moving around within the pocket and feeling defenders around him. A lot of guys are good athletes. Being fast does not necessarily mean you're good at navigating the pocket. P.J. Walker has, it's like he has eyes on the back of his head. He does a great job at sliding and moving within the pocket. Now, another thing he does that's really special is he's very, I would call it slippery, where he's so good at avoiding a sack. It reminds me of Russell Wilson. A defender will have a free shot at him, meaning there's nobody. A, A defender will come free off the edge, no reason not to tackle P.J. Walker, and he still makes a guy miss, whether it's a a move left, a step up, a spin move, whatever you want. He's so good at making defenders who have a free shot at him miss. It's so crazy. But again, there are two types of things he's great at. Number one, P.J. Walker is phenomenal outside of the pocket. He moves, he extends plays, he keeps his eyes downfield, and he's looking to throw the ball. He gets out of the pocket, not to run, but to throw. He runs to throw. He does it so often, and it's extremely effective. He's also really good at knowing when to tuck. There are occasional moments where nobody's open. He tucks the ball and runs for eight yards. That happens. But very rarely does P.J. Walker run just to get yards. That's not the kind of quarterback he is. However, he is pretty quick. He's very good at escaping a sack. He also is very good at knowing when to throw the ball away. I've seen a couple moments where nobody's open. The defenders are closing in. He says, hey... I'm just going to throw the ball into the stands. That shows a lot of discipline. It makes me really excited. So he's great outside of the pocket. He's also great within the pocket. This is the coolest part of P.J. Walker's ability at the quarterback position. P.J. Walker doesn't just run the first time he has trouble and bodies around him. He's not skittish. He's not uncomfortable in the pocket. He runs if he needs to, but He's got tremendous feel for the game, and that's hard to teach. He slides up in the pocket. He steps up. He moves forward. He doesn't just run around and run away the first time there's a body around him. He'll step up. He'll slide around and keep his eyes downfield and stay within the pocket. It's incredibly rare to find a guy who can stay in the pocket, who actually, who has the ability to leave the pocket and run with speed, who doesn't always lean on that. P.J. Walker's It's kind of, it's almost uncoachable, his innate ability to navigate bodies around him without being impeded and without getting his eyes to come down from the downfield. He keeps his eyes downfield while bodies are around him and just slides around within the pocket. It's so impressive to me. Uh, So P.J. Walker's mobility makes him a really, really special quarterback talent. One of the best movers within the pocket I've seen in a really long time. But he's not perfect. P.J. Walker has had a couple throws in the first two weeks of the XFL season that should have been intercepted and were dropped. And a lot of people forget those plays. We talk all about how great P.J. Walker is, this incredible touchdown, that incredible run, that incredible throw where he avoided a sack and threw the ball downfield. But there are plays that should have been picked off and even a throw that should have been a pick six that the defense dropped. And if the defense had made those plays, we would be talking about how great P.J. Walker is, but... 
we would also be talking about the interceptions. And that's really important because they don't go on the stat line, but they still matter. So, yes, P.J. Walker's phenomenal. I do think he also has some timing issues. There are a couple little things uh, where he could be even faster. The NFL game is a lot faster than the XFL is. The XFL is faster than college. The NFL is even faster than the XFL. The game speeds up the higher the level you play at. Um, But P.J. Walker does great stuff, got a great arm. Just don't forget, he's not perfect. He's not exactly NFL ready right away. He's going to have to grow a little bit more if he ever wants to succeed at the NFL level. However, it is important. You have to ask the question, what's next for P.J. Walker? Because he does show some stuff that could work at an NFL level. So we have to ask, what's next? Is he an NFL quarterback? There are a lot of possibilities here and places where P.J. Walker could go as a quarterback. Number one, I think the XFL has an opportunity to build their league around P.J. Walker. I I think, man, it would be a big shame if P.J. Walker left the XFL and went and sat on the sidelines of an NFL team as a backup next fall. It would be a shame. It's, he's too good and too fun to watch to have him not play somewhere, whether it's in the XFL or in the NFL next year. If, now, here's the reality. An NFL team could offer him more money to be a backup in the NFL. He could leave the XFL for more money and still not get on the field. And in that case, I would say, man, the XFL had better pony up. If, it was, if I was the guy running the XFL, and I think the XFL has the self-awareness to, do, to make a move like this, if I was the XFL, I would outbid the NFL. I said, hey, P.J. Walker, you're going to be a backup in the NFL. Let us pay you more. We'll pay you millions to keep you here and to make you the face of our league. We'll pay you more money. We want you here. We want you playing on weekends rather than sitting on the sideline in the NFL. Let's build around P.J. Walker. That's what the XFL could do. Now, here's another scenario, though. The Carolina Panthers need a franchise quarterback. And Philip Walker is 24 years old. The Panthers head coach, Matt Rule, used to coach P.J. Walker at Temple. Very interesting. They have a relationship. P.J. Walker has a relationship with Matt Rule, the head coach in Carolina. And furthermore, the Carolina Panthers offensive coordinator is Joe Brady. Joe Brady helped Joe Burrow at LSU. Joe Brady helped Joe Burrow master LSU's offense. With Brady's help, Joe Burrow was phenomenal. He won the Heisman Trophy. had literally, I'm not kidding, the best college football season of all time. Now, Brady coached him up. Joe Burrow also worked his butt off. They both deserve credit. Joe Burrow worked really hard. Joe Brady helped coach him. They were, had a symbiotic relationship Neither one deserves more credit than the other. They both made that happen. But Joe Brady, the point here is that Joe Brady could help P.J. Walker the same way he helped Joe Burrow. Joe Brady could help P.J. Walker improve his timing. He could help him master the Panthers' offense and help him become an incredible decision maker. P.J. Walker already makes very good decisions. He's very good. But he could take the next step and get even better by working with Joe Brady. Joe Brady's a great teacher. He's a great communicator. And I have no doubt he would work really well with P.J. Walker. And P.J. Walker doesn't even need to be perfect. He has the ability to extend a play. 
he can make up for his shortcomings as a decision maker early on. If early on in the NFL season next year, P.J. Walker was not quite where he needed to be, he'd still be okay because he could get away with it by running around. The same way we saw Daniel Jones in his first game with the Giants or Kyler Murray in his first season in the NFL. Kyler Murray was not perfect, but he won the NFL Rookie of the Year and had a tremendous amount of success because of his mobility. His mobility made up for his other flaws, and P.J. Walker could be the same way. I don't know, man. If P.J. Walker stays in the XFL, that'd be great. I would love that. I want to watch P.J. Walker play somewhere next year. What I don't want to have happen is to have P.J. Walker sign with an NFL franchise for a lot of money and then not play. That sounds awful. I hope that the XFL steps up and says, hey, we recognize your value, P.J. Walker. Here's millions of dollars. Here's a big contract. Be the face of our league. Because he's so much fun to watch. I don't want to watch him on the sideline. That'd be a pain. That'd be a shame. But the reality is that some NFL franchises, some NFL teams might view P.J. Walker as a franchise quarterback. They might look at that guy in Houston and go, you know what? We can win with that cat. We can build around that guy. And if P.J. Walker goes anywhere to be an NFL franchise quarterback, I cannot think of a better fit. It makes too much sense for him to go to the Carolina Panthers. Matt Rule, the head coach of Carolina, used to be P.J. Walker's head coach at Temple. The offensive coordinator, Joe Brady, could help develop him. And the Panthers have the number seven overall pick. What that means is that by the time they're able to draft, it is very likely that three quarterbacks will already be taken off the board. Tua is going to be gone. Joe Burrow is going to be gone. Justin Herbert will likely be gone to the Chargers. If the Panthers are able to sign P.J. Walker, they would be able to save their first-round pick and draft a player who could help them get better as a football team. Save the pick Sign P.J. Walker. Make P.J. Walker your franchise quarterback. Another thing they could do is draft down. They could use that number seven overall pick. I'm sure somebody wants Jordan Love, the quarterback out of Utah State. They could draft down. They could get more picks. That's a possibility. The Panthers are rebuilding. They need more than just a quarterback. If they could use that number seven overall pick to make their team better and get a quarterback, P.J. Walker, who's not in the draft... That would be a huge, massive, massive deal in Carolina for the Panthers. It's a great way to build your franchise. Now, maybe the Panthers just want to draft Jordan Love. Maybe the Panthers say, hey, Tua, Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, they're all gone. Jordan Love is left. He's a quarterback at Utah State. He's got tremendous upside. We'll take him. Maybe the Panthers' plan is we're going to play Cam Newton for this year, let Jordan Love sit behind him, and do that. That's a possibility, too. Maybe the Carolina Panthers don't feel like they need P.J. Walker. But I'm telling you, if P.J. Walker goes anywhere to enter the NFL and be a franchise quarterback, there's not a better fit in the league than the Carolina Panthers for P.J. Walker. That is what I want to see, man. I can't wait to see what happens. It's possible. The Panthers could view P.J. Walker as their next future franchise quarterback. He's young. He's super mobile. He's not a running quarterback. He doesn't get hit a ton. He's not Cam Newton. P.J. Walker's a different kind of quarterback. He runs to throw, doesn't just run for a bunch of yards. I'm telling you, man, I think I would take P.J. Walker, who's 24 years old, mobile, healthy, plays well, the star of the XFL. I would take P.J. Walker 
over Cam Newton, who's 30 years old, had injury problems. I'd take P.J. Walker today over Cam Newton. And if P.J. Walker ended up in Charlotte, North Carolina with the Panthers, I would not be shocked even in the slightest. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. When I return, what we're going to do is I'm going to share my takeaways from NFL or XFL Week 2. We're going to talk about all eight teams, do kind of a rundown of each one. We talked a lot about the Houston Roughnecks, so I'm going to put them at the bottom of the list. Uh, but when I return, we'll start by discussing Week 2, and we will talk about the St. Louis Battlehawks. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. All right, we are back. Um, on Sunday, the St. Louis Battlehawks lost to Houston. 28-24. to It was a close game, really fun game. And the headlining story with the Houston Battlehawks, in my opinion, is that they have two glaring issues they need to solve in order to make them a more successful football team. Number one, their quarterback, Jordan Ta'amu, simply lacks polish. He's a, I'm a big fan of the guy. Uh, he's got a lot going for him. He's 22 years old. He's got a good arm. He can move. Physically, he's really talented. He makes fairly good decisions, too. He's not an awful quarterback. Uh, I take him over Brandon Silvers, the guy in Seattle, for example. Now, the stat line in the last game was not bad. He was 30 for 37 passing at 284 yards, three touchdowns, two interceptions. And I always say that stats are not the story, and that could not be more true than in this situation. I, I don't like when people just go, hey, he had three touchdowns, a lot of yards, only seven incompletions. There's a lot more to it than that, though. First of all, we'll start with the two interceptions. Actually, this is where part of the story is wrong. The interceptions sound terrible. But when you look at the context of what happened, number one, his first interception, he was hit as he threw. It's just unfortunate. It wasn't really his fault. It was just a, a bang-bang play where he got hit as he threw, couldn't get enough on the ball, ball was underthrown because he got hit and pick, got picked off. That's not really his fault. That's just a, that's a, a crappy play that stinks. Number two, his second interception actually was just a unfortunate learning moment. It wasn't a horrible decision. Now, there are multiple layers here. Um, so, first of all, if you just watched it with no context behind it, it looks really terrible. It looks like he forced a deep ball into double coverage. You go, what are you doing? What the heck? And that play was at a critical moment, too, because it gave Houston the ball at the one-yard line in the fourth quarter. And you're like, man, that, at, at face value, that sounds terrible and horrible. But on second glance, you'll realize, oh my gosh, Jordan Ta'amu believed that someone on the defense jumped off sides. And a penalty like that usually means a free play for the offense. So Jordan Ta'amu, believing he had a free play, actually did the right thing. If, if he really had had a free play, he did the right thing by taking a shot downfield. Because you think, hey, it's a five-yard penalty, it's a free play, let's throw the ball into double coverage, maybe our guy comes down with it, we get a gigantic gain. Here's the problem, though. The refs didn't throw a flag. This is why it's a teaching moment for Jordan Ta'amu. He had the right idea. I, honestly, like he was furious after the play, like, where's the flag? And I, I felt bad for the guy because as a quarterback, when you think you have a guy offsides, you have to look for the flag because the guy who would make that call is the line judge. He's off to the side. He's in your peripheral vision. And you can always see him in your peripheral. You can always see that guy. So you snap the ball Take a glance. If he throws the flag, it's very obvious you can see it. The problem is that Jordan Ta'amu assumed he had the flag without looking. 
And in fact, there wasn't a flag, so it wasn't a free play. He had the right idea. He's on the right track. I just felt bad for the guy because it was a small, tiny detail that got missed. And really, it's just a symptom of a larger problem, which is that the St. Louis quarterback, Jordan Ta'amu, has a great foundation, a lot of good stuff going for him. He's better than I would have thought, actually. He's really looked very good in the first two weeks of the year, but he lacks polish. There's a couple things he needs to do that could be better, and if they are better, he'll be a phenomenal quarterback, probably an NFL quarterback. There are little things like that offside situation or the fact that his timing is a bit slow. There are moments where you know, he's throwing the guys after they're open rather than anticipating when they're going to be open. He's a bit slow for the NFL. But the biggest issue that Jordan Ta'amu has is that he is horrible, horrible at dealing with a blitz. A blitz is when a defense uses more defenders than normal to rush a quarterback. And Jordan Ta'amu handles it in the worst possible way. He holds on to the ball and tries to run away. What he does is exactly what the defense wants him to do. He plays right into their hands. What he needs to do is make a change and start beating a blitz by throwing the ball downfield. It's a numbers game. If a team blitzes eight people, it means there's only three back in coverage. You have great matchups on the outside. You have probably man-to-man coverage. It's cover zero, meaning everybody has a one-on-one matchup. You've got to pick the best matchup and throw the ball there. Houston, in their last game, multiple times ran... Cover one, meaning there's one safety in the middle of the field, man coverage everywhere else, and they brought defenders blitzing. Meaning that man coverage, your guy has to beat their guy. And multiple times there were shallow crossers running across the middle of the field, beating their man wide open by like three steps wide open right in front of Jordan Ta'amu. And he was trying to run away rather than standing in there and throwing the ball to the open man across the middle of the field. I felt bad for him. I was like, oh man, you're so close. So Jordan Ta'amu's biggest issue is that he needs to learn how to beat the blitz by throwing. Hang in there, hang in the pocket, find your best matchup, and throw the ball to that. That Coaches need to help him with that. The coaches in St. Louis need to say, hey man, you got to do a better job of the blitz. Here's how we do it. They might not have an understanding of that problem, but if they can help him with that problem by watching film, Jordan Ta'amu will massively become a gigantically better quarterback overnight. Now, maybe, so that's the quarterback's issue. Now, as a whole, the biggest issue St. Louis has on offense is that they're stubborn. They just are so darn stubborn. Multiple times, Houston would load the box to stop their run. What that would mean is that they use more defenders to stop the run. So, and St. Louis refused to adjust. So, for example, there was a moment where St. Louis had eight guys right around the line of scrimmage, meaning that it's man coverage on the outside, And St. Louis only had seven guys to block those eight. And they still tried to run the ball right up the gut, right up the middle. It's a losing scenario. It's a no-win scenario. If you try to run the ball, you have seven blockers to block eight guys, you're going to fail. That's a bad, bad idea. And they kept trying to do it. They kept trying to do it. They wouldn't adjust. They wouldn't make any kind of changes. It's frustrating. And I kept waiting for St. Louis to counter or adapt, and they never did. They kept running the ball into hopeless situations. They need to either call what's called an RPO run-pass option, where it's a running play. Unless the defense does that, they commit everybody to stop the run. That's where the pass option comes into play. You want to blitz eight guys? You want to bring eight guys to stop the run? We'll throw the ball right behind you. Or they can come up with an audible scenario, an audible system, 
where the quarterback can change the play at the line of scrimmage if he recognizes, hey, we're in a scenario where running the ball is not going to succeed. We're going to fail. We have a, a really bad matchup up front. They have eight guys on the line of scrimmage. We have seven guys to block eight. It's not going to work. St. Louis needs to come up with some kind of system to adapt to teams playing to stop their running game. They're, they're very stubborn. They haven't adapted. It's been two weeks. And because they didn't adapt against Houston last week, that's why they lost. They only lost by four points. Houston was in that, excuse me, St. Louis was in that game against Houston, but they refused to adapt and it cost them. Now, the final point I want to make about St. Louis is that their punter, Marquette King, is a star. He's actually, of any player in the XFL, Marquette King, the punter in St. Louis, has more NFL accomplishment than anybody else in the entire league. It's actually very cool. He was once named an all-pro punter. He's 31 years old. He played in the NFL for seven years. He's got a giant leg. He's regularly pinned teams deep in their own territory. Now, the rumor is that the NFL didn't like his large personality. He's got a bunch of followers on Twitter. He's very flamboyant as a player. Now, I personally love him. I think it's fun to watch. I really like his... He's like a good dude, by the way, too. But I really respect that Marquette King is in the XFL at all. It shows that he just wants to play football. A lot of guys say, I want to play football. Give me a job. Why can't I get a job? Instead of being one of those guys who just talks about how he wants a job in the NFL, and the NFL screwing him over, they're not taking him, what he did is say, hey, I'm going to go to the XFL. I'll probably play for less money than I deserve. But you know what? I'm going to go to the XFL. I'm going to prove why I belong in the NFL. And it's very clear watching Marquette King, a guy who is a former All-Pro, a phenomenal, he could walk into any NFL locker room and compete for their starting punter job, if not be the starting punter immediately. He's that talented. He's physically an incredibly talented punter. Marquette King has put his ego aside, said, hey, I want to play in the NFL again. You won't take me? Fine. I'll go to the XFL. I will prove myself worthy. And to me, that is so cool. That is, I, I think that deserves respect. It deserves recognition. It deserves eyeballs. Marquette King put his ego aside, said, hey, you, I want to play for you guys. Let me show you what I got. A lot of guys talk. A lot of guys say, I want to be in the NFL. The NFL is screwing me over. The NFL won't take me. Marquette King didn't do that. He did that. He said, I feel like I'm getting screwed over. And then he went to the XFL. And he played in the XFL. And he's proving why he belongs in the NFL Mm. Bravo. Well done, Marquette King. Now, the Seattle Dragons beat the Tampa Bay Vipers 17-9 to on Saturday in their home opener. And I was there. It was awesome. It was so much fun. Uh, first of all, the XFL and the Seattle Dragons were such gracious hosts. So thank you to them. They were phenomenal. They put me up in the press box. And 29,172 fans showed up for the game. That's a big deal. That's a number that Seattle should be proud of. Hey, our city wants football. They showed up. They were loud. They were into the game. It, gosh, it was a blast. And I looked at tickets this week. Hey, uh, it looks like the stadium's going to be as full again this week because it's really hard to come by a ticket for the game. Uh, I'm just so impressed with Seattle and their, their ability to show up for their team. Now, there are two big storylines in Seattle with the Dragons, if you ask me. Number one, the Dragons quarterback, Brandon Silvers, wasn't great. He really, first of all, I asked him after the game what happened and how he felt about it. And 
I really respected the way that Brandon Silvers in that interview took ownership of his mistakes. He said, I need to play better. And he's right. He struggled with accuracy at times. He made some bad decisions. He threw a pick six. But here's the good news. It's all there for Brandon Silvers. It's, there's our, there are multiple opportunities for him to succeed. He just needs to execute. It's all there. It's right in front of him. And if I was a Seattle Dragons fan, I would not give up on Brandon Silvers. He's got a great attitude. He understands, hey, I play the hardest position in football, and it's going to be tough. And when bad things happen, I got to just keep going. I literally asked him, hey, how did you bounce back from your pick six? And he said, that's football. That's my job. I have to do that. And he did bounce back. He threw a long touchdown right after that. And so I just look at, I look at Brandon Silvers, and Seattle has receivers open often. He just needs to capitalize. There were a couple moments where he had people open, and he missed the throw. Or, and there were a couple throws he forced into bad situations, but I really think Brandon Silvers has what it takes. He's just got to execute. Now, another thing that's really important is people don't realize that he was dealing with an ankle injury throughout the week leading up to that game. He didn't practice all week. And I asked him, he said it didn't affect him. The ankle injury did not affect his play in the game on Saturday. Sure, but it certainly kept him off the practice field throughout the week. And I hope he has a full week of practice this week. He needs it. I know that's harsh, but Brandon Silvers has too good of potential and too many good opportunities in front of him to not get it done. And so I really hope he has a great week of practice this week. He's prepared. He's ready to go because he is so close to having major success. And I hope he makes that happen this next week in week three of the XFL season. Now, my personal favorite moment of the Seattle Dragons home opener on Saturday was I got to watch my former high school teammate, a friend of the show. He's been on the podcast. He sat right there. We did a long form interview. My buddy Marcel Frazier had a pick six. And oh my goodness, man, it was so much fun. I got to actually, you know, here's what's crazy. I didn't film at all. I'm in the press box and I, I didn't film the game at all on my phone except for one moment. There was one moment, it's third down. The, the Vipers were backed way up. And I saw my buddy Marcel, you know, kind of trying to pump up the crowd, you know, throwing his hands in the air. And I'm like, man, I want to get a video of that. So I zoom in on Marcel. I get a video of him pumping up the crowd. I'm like, I'll put this on my Instagram story. And I'm like, you know what? It feels weird to stop rolling. So I just kept rolling through the play. And on that play, Marcel jumped up, grabbed the ball, and ran for a pick six. And I'm like, are you kidding me? The one time all game I was filming. And I got a horrible video. It's like you can barely see him. He's really far away on the other side of the field. It's like you, I'm trying to navigate through the press box. So there's like a thing in front. But man, oh my gosh, I could not believe that the one moment I was actually rolling the entire game, I got a video of my buddy getting a touchdown. It was so awesome. Uh, so happy for him. It's been a long journey. People don't realize the journey Marcel's been on. He played in junior college, had to earn a scholarship. He went to Missouri. Then he went to the NFL briefly. And he didn't make it with the Browns. Didn't make it with the Seahawks. Had to go. He went and got his his master's degree from Missouri. And now he's in the XFL. He got a touchdown on Saturday. He's contributing, playing at a high level for the Dragons. And man, I, that story, to me, stories like that, guys who keep going, who keep trying. He coached high school football for a little while. He got his master's degree. He has fought so hard for moments like the moment he had on Saturday in the end zone. And uh, man, it just fires me up. It made me so happy. Marcel, I was so happy for him and happy for you if you're listening to this. And uh, I know we, we were texting afterwards. It was just awesome. And I'm so, so happy for Marcel. What a cool moment that was in Seattle Dragons home opener on Saturday. 
against the Tampa Bay Vipers. Now, uh, the Vipers. Seattle beat the Tampa Bay Vipers 17-9. And uh, Tampa's been really struggling at the quarterback position. Here's the horrible reality. Not the horrible reality, but a horrible reality that we have to deal with. Uh, I feel bad for Vipers fans. In the first two weeks, their team has been in the red zone seven times. Seven trips to the red zone, meaning they were so close to the end zone. And they haven't scored once. They're 0 and 7. 0 for 7 in the red zone in the first two weeks. They cannot finish drives. I feel so bad for the Tampa Bay Vipers. They have one touchdown all year, and they got it on defense from a pick six. Now, week one, Aaron Murray was a starting quarterback. He had two interceptions, and conveniently going into week two, conveniently is the word I'll use, conveniently, he was hurt. Is that real? Is that not? I don't know. We'll find out. So in week two, Tampa played two different quarterbacks. They played Taylor Cornelius at quarterback, and they played Quinton Flowers. Both of them were bad. They missed wide-open receivers. They made inaccurate throws. They were very inaccurate. They made bad decisions. I felt bad for the Vipers head coach, Mark Trestman. Taylor Cornelius had two interceptions. Quinton Flowers also had an interception. And, uh, man, I don't know. I, I criticized Mark Trestman for not giving Quinton Flowers an opportunity during week one. Well, in week two, he did give him an opportunity. Flowers got the opportunity. Flowers had the chance, and he wasn't very good. There was a key third down that really stands out in my mind where it was a great play call. It was, I think it was third and three. Mark Tresman made a, Blake, great, uh, made a great play call where there was man-to-man coverage on the left. The receiver ran a slant. It was wide open. And Brandon Flowers threw it behind the receiver and allowed the defender to make a play. And really, I mean, threw it egregiously behind the receiver. It was open. It was there. And he just missed the throw and cost his team a first down. I went, oof, man. What do you do? I'm really not sure what Mark Trestman can do now as the offensive coordinator of the Vipers. All of your quarterbacks are bad. Now, I met Mark. I was at the game. I met him. I got to ask him a question. He's a very nice man. I really liked him. I got a great vibe from him. Um, and his hands are tied. Now, the one question I should have asked him, I learned for next time, I feel so bad, but I'm learning how to cover teams live and how to do interviews. And I, I just, I, I felt wrong, but I realized it's not my job to be friends with Mark Trestman. It's my job to ask him an uncomfortable question. And so... You know, the Vipers have tried everything at quarterback. They've had three different quarterbacks. Every single one of them was bad. And if I could go back in time, the question I would ask Mark Trestman is I would say, I would ask if there's been any thought to build an offense around Quinton Flowers' ability to run the same way that the Ravens did with Lamar Jackson or the way that Oklahoma did with Jalen Hurts. I think I could have asked that question and it wouldn't have been disrespectful. It would have come across well. And I should have asked it. I learned for next time. Because the Vipers have three quarterbacks. They're all bad. They have weak arms. They have below average accuracy. They're, they're below average decision makers. Two of the three can't run, though. Aaron Murray and Taylor Cornelius are not dynamic athletes at all. Now, Quinton Flowers has one feature the other two quarterbacks do not. He's a dynamic, really good athlete. He's a great runner. And I wonder, because the Vipers have tried everything else. They've tried to run a normal offense. They've tried three different quarterbacks. They've tried everything. They're 0 for 7 in the red zone. Things are going horribly. Maybe they change everything and adapt their offense to fit into a running quarterback system. 
That's the only thing I have. Like, what other move does Mark Trestman have? I feel so bad for the guy because Mark Trestman doesn't have a quarterback and he needs a quarterback. And he's a good play caller. If there are opportunities, like Mark Trestman has a bad rep. He was the head coach of the Bears. He failed. But I watched the game on Saturday. He had receivers open. Nick Truesdale wide open in the middle of the field. Multiple times slants. They're great play calls being wasted because his quarterback couldn't make the throw. And I like, I'm like, what do you do if you're the head coach here? What, you're the offensive coordinator. And guys are open. The play calls are right, and your quarterback can't deliver. I felt bad for Mark Trestman. He's going to be made out to be the villain. He doesn't deserve it. His quarterbacks aren't delivering. So maybe the only move they have left is to build a, an offense around the fact that Quinton Flowers is a dynamic running quarterback, and they just run the ball, run basically a wildcat system with Quinton Flowers, teach him how to play quarterback. I don't know what else to do with the Tampa Bay Vipers. Two weeks in, their quarterbacks have been terrible. They can't finish drives. It's been a gigantic, gigantic mess with the Tampa Bay Vipers. Now, the last word I want to say about the Tampa Bay Vipers is their best player is tight end Nick Truesdale. He's 29 years old. He actually works out at a gym down the street from me called New Athlete in Vancouver, Washington, where I live. And um, he's always open. He's always open. Multiple times he was wide open down the middle of the field and either the quarterback didn't see him or couldn't get him the ball or couldn't throw accurately. It was like, what the heck? What's going on? So I just want to make a point. If, you're a, if you watch the Vipers in the future, Pay attention to Nick Truesdale. I apologize. I forget his number. If you're that interested, go look up his number. But he will be in an NFL uniform this fall. He's a great receiving tight end. I don't know if he's going to make a team, but if he doesn't make a team, that's an NFL team's fault. You got to know what you're bringing in. Nick Truesdale is not a guy I'd want to block in the running game, but Nick Truesdale is a great receiving tight end who creates mismatches with linebackers. Linebackers cannot guard him and cannot cover him. And if I was an NFL team, I'd say, hey, that guy, Nick Truesdale, looks like Antonio Gates. He's a great rebounder. He's got a big, huge body, great hands. We're not going to try to make him block in the running game, but man, we can use him in the passing game. Maybe a team like the Saints or the Raiders or somebody. Somebody has to be able to see what Nick Truesdale brings to the table, the value he brings. He's got a great, great athletic gift. And if I was an NFL team, I'd look at Nick Truesdale and say, man, this guy can play in the NFL. He can beat linebackers and in coverage and, uh, you know, running routes at least. And so I think Nick Truesdale is the guy to watch in Tampa Bay. He might have an NFL future. Pay attention to him. Now, the New York Guardians lost 27-0. to zero. The New York Guardians lost 27-0 to zero, uh, the other day. And it was kind of a perfect storm. Uh, I had a friend of mine in New York say, because we're going to the game together next week, and uh, they go... Are we going to go watch the worst team in the XFL play? 27-0 is not a good performance. And I say, yeah, I understand. I realize that. But you have to understand that the 27-0 score against the D.C. defenders was just a perfect storm of everything going wrong for them. Number one, they were playing against the best team in the XFL, the D.C. defenders. They're great. Number two, they were missing two offensive linemen, two starting offensive linemen because of injuries. And number three, D.C., who had a really good defense, made it even better by adding Anthony Johnson from L.A. Anthony Johnson is an incredible player. Um, and it's, it's just interesting, like, <laughs> you know, it, it, just, it just doubled down. It made it even worse for New York. New York was already screwed. 
playing the best team with a great defense, missing offensive linemen. Then that team they're playing added a really good defensive lineman, Anthony Johnson, and they were just set up to fail miserably. So New York quarterback Matt McGloin was not set up for success. Now, he didn't handle things great. He was really upset at halftime. He gave an, uh, an interview at halftime where he was very emotional, and he said, we need to just get a new game plan. Nothing's working. It's all a giant mess. And, you know, here's what's weird to me about all this. The media has had taken sides on whether Matt McGloin did the right thing or not. What I find most bizarre about this game is that one of the commentators in the booth was Greg McElroy, who's a former Alabama quarterback. He's a quarterback. You would think he would understand what it's like to play quarterback. You, you would think that. But his analysis, I believe, is just inaccurate from the game. Greg McElroy kept blaming Matt McGloin, saying, you know, pointing out the opportunities where receivers were open. And yes, receivers were open many, many times for the New York Guardians. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. This is where it got a little bit disingenuous for me. And I understand. I'm a Matt McGloin fan. I, I acknowledge. If I, you think I'm defending him unfairly, call me out. No problem. If you think I'm a homer for Matt McGloin, I'll acknowledge, yeah, I love the guy. So maybe I'm wrong. But I don't think I'm wrong. Here's what I saw multiple times. Yes, receivers were open, but Matt McGloin is running for his life or on his back. It's so disingenuous to point out how our quarterback's missing open receivers when the quarterback is not even in the pocket because they're scrambling or because they're getting sacked or getting thrown to the turf. That's what's weird to me. A quarterback can't go through their normal read progressions when they have a guy running free in their face constantly. I don't know, man. Every single play, there was a guy coming free at the quarterback. And it's really hard to find an open man when you're on your back. Matt McGloin wasn't perfect. Matt McGloin has issues. I, I love Matt McGloin. He's got to play better. There was a throw early in the game where he, he threw an interception to Matt Elam where he just left the ball hanging up in the air. Safety was waiting for it. Threw the ball up into double coverage down the right side. Then got picked off. Yeah, that's Matt McGloin's fault. That's terrible. But it wasn't all Matt McGloin's fault. The entire game, the loss wasn't all on Matt McGloin the way a lot of people are acting like. There were multiple dropped passes, and the offensive line was a uniquely bad issue in this game. The offensive line was terrible for New York on, I believe the game was on Saturday morning. I just, it was weird to me that Greg McElroy, of all people, a former Alabama quarterback, didn't understand that. Greg McElroy did what everybody else always does, which is, just blame the quarterback without looking at context at all. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes it's straight up only the quarterback's fault. And the, like Mitchell Trubisky with the Bears has got to play better. Mitchell Trubisky often is the reason why the Bears lose. But sometimes you have to look at context as well. How many dropped passes did the New York Guardians have? How many times did they have the ball in their hands and they drop it? Or how many times was Matt McGloin running for his life? Or how many times was Matt McGloin throwing the ball into the stands because no one's open and he's running for his life. You have to look at context. You can't just blame Matt McGloin without paying attention to what's going on around him. I don't know, man. I, I get the frustration. I think Matt McGloin at halftime should have tempered down. You can't say what he said. He was way too frustrated. Uh, but also, you got to understand, football's an emotional game. And so, I don't know. You know, when New York put in their backup quarterback, did anybody notice that that guy was running for his life as well? It wasn't all Matt McGloin. The offensive line was uniquely bad. So McGloin is not perfect, but there were dropped passes. The offensive line was terrible. 
And, uh, you know, he kept, there was pressure. He kept having to throw the ball away. My whole point is that this loss for New York, for the Guardians, 27-0, ugly loss. Not good at all. But the loss was not all Matt McGloin's fault. He has fault. He's got to play better. But don't put it all on him. The offensive line was terrible. There were drop passes. There were multiple things that went wrong. And you can't just blame the quarterback without paying attention to the context of the situation that goes along with it. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. Coming up, we're going to talk about the two best teams in the XFL. We're going to talk about the D.C. Defenders, the Houston Roughnecks. Then we'll finish the show by talking about the Dallas Renegades and the L.A. Wildcats. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I have a sinus infection. I really need to go drink some water. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. All right, we are back. Um, In my opinion, the D.C. Defenders are the best team in the entire XFL. They won on Saturday. They beat New York 27 to nothing. And they are stacked. They have the best coach in the league, Pep Hamilton. He's been an NFL assistant for years. He's long deserved an opportunity as a head coach. Finally, the XFL gave it to him. They made him the head coach in D.C. But he's a great communicator. He is so good at teaching the game of football. And he's a great coordinator for two important reasons. Number one, his guys are incredibly well organized. You don't see them making very many mistakes. And his team is incredibly well prepared. But the second reason why he's a great coordinator is that he is so good at making small adjustments throughout the course of a game. He's good at adapting to what defenses are doing to try to stop them. So not only does DC have a great head coach, they have one of the best quarterbacks in the entire XFL as well. Now, if you asked anybody on the street, they would probably tell you that P.J. Walker is the best quarterback in the league. But very close behind him at the second position is Cardell Jones, the quarterback in D.C. He's phenomenal. He's a huge guy. And what, what that means is that Cardell Jones can use his size to do things other quarterbacks simply cannot do. There are plays where defenders are hanging off of him, trying to pull him to the ground. He'll still find a way to stay upright and throw the ball downfield accurately. It's really impressive to me. But it's not just his physical ability that makes him phenomenal. He makes really good decisions, particularly in the red zone, where his thought process really impresses me because he knows his matchups, he knows exactly where to go with the ball, and he's so good. The red zone especially is where Cardell Jones really shines. He does a great job down there. But every time I watch Cardell Jones, he makes another impressive throw. Like Every time I look back at my television, I go, another one? Another one? Another big play? Like, oh my gosh. He's highly accurate. He makes good throws. He gets tremendous chunks of yardage downfield with his arm. But I will say this. On Saturday, Cardell Jones made two decisions, two out of numerous decisions, but two of them were bad ones. I'd love to see Cardell Jones make zero bad decisions in the game of football. Uh, first of all, it's the XFL. It's not going to happen. But number two, even the best quarterbacks in the league will make a mistake here and there. Now, on both of those plays, though, there were plays where it, you have a ticking time clock where time is running out and Cardell Jones needs to relax and make a better decision. That's the common thread and common theme when you hear the, about the two mistakes he made. The first one was this. It's a play where he had pressure in his face. He was getting taken to the ground. And he decided to throw the ball up in the middle of the field where he had like four or five defenders around one receiver. It's a bad idea. It's a bad decision. And he was very lucky. The interception got dropped. But it really should have been intercepted. Cardell Jones got very, very lucky. 
The second play was a play where he was running along the sideline, extending the play. The defense was closing in, and he decided again to throw the ball up for grabs, and this time it was intercepted. So again, we see a pattern where there are moments where the defense is closing in, he's running out of time, and he throws the ball up for grabs rather than taking a sack or rather than throwing a ball in the dirt or throwing the ball away. Cardell Jones needs to be more disciplined in moments where, you know, it's, he almost, it's not that he panics, it's not the right word here, but he's like, I have no other option. He's got to just take the loss rather than trying to make a play downfield. But I really, if he's more disciplined, he'll take his mistakes from zero, from two a game to about zero a game. He's very, very close. Cardell Jones is a very efficient, really, really phenomenal quarterback. Now, I also want to credit Eli Rogers, a DC receiver, uh, his mom died during the week leading up to their game against New York. And he decided to play in the game rather than going to his mom's funeral. His mom's funeral was literally happening the day of the game. And so he played. He had five catches. He had 49 yards. Uh, and I really respect him for playing. I don't know his mom. I know that if if someone in my life died, I would want them to play. Like, go do what you love. Don't let my death slow you down from living your life and living it to the fullest. And so... Um, I can't speak for his mom. I know that's how I would feel if someone in my family died. If, if I died, I would want my family members to carry on. I, my guess is Eli Rogers honored his mom with that game. And I just wanted to give him credit. That's really, really cool what happened uh, in, uh, in, on Saturday with their game. Now, here's what's interesting is that DC's defense is, they're the best in the XFL. Like In my opinion, the DC defenders are the best team total in the NFL. They're a great quarterback, the best head coach, a great defense. And what's even more scary is that they went from a, a defense that was already really, really good, and they got even better through an acquisition they made during the week, which is terrifying and scary. They added Anthony Johnson from L.A. L.A. let Anthony Johnson go after one week, and I don't think it was because he was not talented. There was something going on. They fired their defensive coordinator, Pepper Johnson. They also got rid of Anthony Johnson Anthony Johnson was a captain on the LA Wildcats. So clearly, like, he's a good player. He was well-liked. Something went on behind the scenes that they got rid of him. But he went into D.C. I actually DM'd with him the other day. Um, He is happy to be in D.C. He's happy to be there. He wants to play the game of football. And uh, he made D.C. even better, which is really, really scary. Because they were already the best team in the league. Here's what happened. He had an immediate impact on Saturday. Anthony Johnson came in. He, like, flew on a red-eye flight from L.A. to Washington, D.C., Played in the game. He led his team in sacks. He had one and a half sacks on Saturday. He had two tackles for loss, three total tackles. It is so scary that the D.C. defenders got even better by adding Anthony Johnson. It's just crazy to me. Now, another really talented player on D.C.'s defense is Matt Elam. In 2013, Matt Elam was a first-round pick by the Baltimore Ravens. And some people actually... Uh, and not adoringly, they, they, some people say that Matt Elam is the biggest bust in Ravens draft history. First round pick who just didn't pan out with the Baltimore Ravens, but it is important. He was a first round pick for a reason. He's really, really talented. It never worked for him in the NFL, but he's playing pretty good in DC. He had a pick on Saturday. Uh, he, he picked off Matt McGloin, the quarterback of New York. And, uh, I'm just really curious to follow his story and follow his career He's a guy looking for redemption. For whatever reason, he was, talent was never the problem with Matt Elam. He could never get his stuff together off the field, and it really affected him. In fact, he was like, 
when he came into the draft, he was the only guy who didn't have an agent, which is weird. It's hard to take on that kind of responsibility because an agent, when you're an NFL player, deals with so much crap you shouldn't have to worry about. As an NFL player, you want to worry about your body, being prepared, your playbook, yada, yada. You don't want to have to worry about the other logistics of being an athlete. So I think a lot went on behind the scenes with Matt Elam. But either way, he was a first-round bust who failed in the NFL. But he's making a name for himself with DC, and that's really cool because I, I just... It's a redemption story. It's a really cool story of a guy making a comeback after failing pretty miserably in the NFL. And I just find myself rooting for Matt Elam. Again, the D.C. Defenders, they're the best team in the league. They've got a great coach, great quarterback, Anthony Johnson, Matt Elam, a really talented defense. And uh, they are the team to beat in the XFL. How about the Houston Roughnecks? They're 2-0. They beat St. Louis 28-24 on Sunday night. And uh, their head coach, June Jones, is phenomenal. I think personally, it's very, very close, but I think personally, Pep Hamilton, the coach in D.C., is the best coach in the XFL. But June Jones is right there, right behind him at number two. He's a great play designer, and I love how much he's willing to adapt. His adaptability is on full display in Houston with the way they use a guy named Nick Hawley. Nick Hawley bounced all over the place in college and... They line him up all over the field. They line him up at receiver. Nick Hawley lines up out wide at receiver. He lines up in the slot. He lines up in the backfield at running back. It's pretty interesting to me the way that Houston has adapted their offense to fit the needs of Nick Hawley and said, hey, how can we use Nick Hawley to the best of his abilities? I really like that. It's a credit to the coaching staff and their, their vision and their understanding of how to win on offense. Now, I also got to say, it's pretty clear if you're going to talk about the Houston Roughnecks, you have to talk about their quarterback, P.J. Walker. I feel like I've talked about him endlessly. I have a lot because P.J. Walker is the star of the league. He's literally not only the best quarterback in the league, probably the face of the league, period, but he deserves to be talked about. First of all, we do have to say, though, the guy isn't perfect. I've talked a lot of praise. I've said a lot of really good stuff about P.J. Walker. We'll get into that in a minute. But I do want to acknowledge, you know, P.J. Walker has room to grow as a quarterback. His timing could be a little bit faster. And he's had a couple throws that should have been intercepted. We always forget the interceptions that are dropped. P.J. Walker's stats are incredible. He's getting a ton of praise. If those would have been interceptions were caught rather than dropped, he would have had a pick six. He would have had two interceptions last week, two week one. Um, You could have seven touchdowns and four interceptions right now. Nobody remembers that. It's important to remember, hey, he's not perfect. He's had some moments that he got away with things and that weren't punished. He should have had a couple interceptions so far this year. However, I got to say, the dude is, P.J. Walker is absolutely shredding the league. He has a great arm. He's very accurate. But what makes P.J. Walker a special quarterback is his mobility. It was so fun watching P.J. Walker against St. Louis because St. Louis's quarterback, Jordan Ta'amu, is also a good athlete. Jordan Ta'amu is a good athlete, but... He doesn't make the plays that P.J. Walker can make, even though they're both good athletes and they're both fast. Watching P.J. Walker and Jordan Ta'amu play against each other helps you appreciate just how gifted and how good P.J. Walker is. P.J. Walker isn't just fast. He's elusive. It's like he has eyes in the back of his head. He's slippery. He's hard to tackle. He's hard to sack. Defenders come free off the edge and still don't take him to the ground. It's really, really impressive. P.J. Walker has tremendous, tremendous feel for the game. 
The way he escapes pressure is so much fun to watch. I love it. He'll, he knows exactly where to step, when to step up, when to step back, how to avoid a sack. He keeps his eyes downfield. He extends plays. He throws the ball downfield. And it's a, a thing you can't really coach. You just kind of have to have it or you don't. It's like a feel where he's so good at understanding where defenders are around him and navigating within and without of the pocket. Now, again, he's not a running quarterback. He doesn't run for yards. He runs to keep plays alive and eventually throw the ball downfield. He doesn't ever run for very many yards. He runs to throw. And it is so much fun to watch. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Uh, and it's cool because sometimes he just slides up and steps up in the pocket. He doesn't run at the first glance of pressure or glance of problems. He doesn't just run immediately. He runs when he needs to, but he's not just a running quarterback. He's actually an all-around phenomenal, fantastic quarterback. That is why P.J. Walker is the talk of the town, and he very much deserves all the respect and love he's been getting in the first two weeks of the XFL season. Now, the Dallas Renegades are 1-1, one one, but the way they got there, to me, is really, really interesting. Week 1, Dallas barely lost to St. Louis, and they lost with a backup quarterback, Philip Nelson, playing. Week 2, their starting quarterback, Landry Jones, comes back, and they win. But even more interesting is that Landry Jones actually played terrible. Now, the stats were not as bad as I'm making it out to be. He, he was bad, though. He was uh, 28 for 40 passing, which is, in case you're keeping track, that's a 70% completion percentage. Very good. He had 305 yards, one touchdown, but two interceptions. But I got to say, I'm so excited for the future of this Dallas team. Landry Jones left so much on the table on Sunday in their game. He missed some key throws. He threw a lot of, you know, some bad interceptions. He threw a lot of bad passes that weren't accurate, period. And the key is that Dallas still won the game. It says two things. Number one, it says that Dallas is an all-around really good football team. They won week one, excuse me, they almost won week one with a backup quarterback. They won week two with bad quarterback play. It says, hey, our defense is good. We run the ball. We are a good football team, period. But number two, it says that when Landry Jones cleans things up and plays even better, he's going to be scary. This team is going to be terrifying to play against. Now, it's really important. Dallas runs the air raid system. What that means is they throw the ball a ton. They run The air raid system was invented by Hal Mummy. Hal Mummy was the head coach at Kentucky. His offensive coordinator was Mike Leach. Mike Leach and Hal Mummy both run the air raid system. And the difference, though, I spent a lot of time around Mike Leach. I spent two years with Washington State's core, at Washington State around their offense, learning and paying attention and learning a lot of stuff. And the biggest difference between Mike Leach and Hal Mummy is that Hal Mummy is committed to running the ball. Mike Leach doesn't really care about running the ball. He kind of laughs at it. It's a big criticism of him. Hal Mummy is not Mike Leach. Dallas ran the ball 14 times with Cameron Artis Payne for 99 yards and two touchdowns. They also ran the ball six times with Lance Dunbar for 44 yards, excuse me, 42 yards. They had almost 150 rushing yards with running backs. It doesn't happen very often in a, quote, air raid system, because if you only know Mike Leach's air raid system, you're missing out on what's actually a really interesting offense with Hal Mummy. They call it the air raid offense. Mike Leach and Hal Mummy run it very differently. Here's what's crazy. Dallas had four. I'm not, I'm not a stats guy. I don't care about stats. But I do want to point out some stats that are interesting to me. Dallas ran. Dallas had 444 yards of total offense in their game. 
That means they were they went up and down the field at least four times, four and a half times. They went all the way up and down the field moving the ball. They were moving the ball a tremendous amount, really effectively moving the ball, having good drives. But they only scored three touchdowns as a result. What happened? How do you score only three touchdowns when you have 444 yards? It comes back to that quarterback. Landry Jones did have a bad game. Yeah, he had a lot of yards. Yeah, he had a 70% completion percentage. But those 12 incompletions came on third down, came in key situations. He had turnovers. He had interceptions. He didn't play his best. I strongly, strongly believe Landry Jones is going to improve. He was hurt to start the year. He's really only had three practices all season. He's going to get better as the year goes on. I have tremendous patience for Landry Jones. And I got to say, watching Landry Jones, even with the mistakes, it was like he was made to run this offense. It's so much fun. There's really big stuff ahead for the Dallas Renegades. I'm telling you, the arm talent Landry Jones had really opened up their offense from week one to two. Week two, they're a different football team with an even better quarterback who didn't even play great. So I'm telling you, there is so much potential here in Dallas with their team. They're going to get better. They're going to improve. And they're, they're going to surprise a lot of people moving forward. The sky is the limit for Dallas. They're the team no one's paying enough attention to. They're really good. They finally got their quarterback you know, back in the lineup. He played bad week two in his first start. Week eight? He'll be a different quarterback than he was last weekend. Dallas is the team to watch. They're going to get better and better and better throughout the course of the year. They probably have the most potential of any team in the XFL. Watch what happens as Landry Jones gets better and they score more and more points and keep playing the same defense they're playing and running the ball as well as they are. Having Landry Jones play at a high level is going to put Dallas over the top. And they're a scary good football team because they almost won without him. And they did win when he played poorly. Dallas is the team to pay attention to in the XFL. The LA, uh, what am I saying? Wow. The LA Wildcats were beat on Sunday. They lost to Dallas 25 to 18. They're 0 2. Things are dark. Oh no, they're terrible. They lost their home opener. Um, I'm not concerned at all. I'm not. Uh, the The LA Wildcats finally got their starting quarterback, Josh Johnson, back. And he's going to be even better next week. We saw a similar thing with, you know, Dallas got their starting quarterback back. It's going to take them a little bit of time to get into rhythm. And I believe that the LA Wildcats are an upper middle team in the XFL. They're not the best team. They're certainly not the worst team. They're 0-2, but that doesn't mean a lot. The LA Wildcats can win some games and do some damage in this league. Josh Johnson, their quarterback, is back from an injury. This was his first game back last weekend against Dallas. And, uh... He was even better than people realize. He does so many little things that people don't pay attention to. Like leadership is phenomenal. The way he communicates with his teammates and calms everybody down is really great. He manipulates defenses with his eyes. He can make throws where he throws over defenders, over top of linebackers, but the ball drops down before a safety can get there. He understands his matchups. Josh Johnson gets it, man. He missed a couple throws he should have made on Sunday, but he understands how to play the quarterback position. He's a savvy veteran. He's going to play a lot better throughout the course of the year, and I don't think the L.A. Wildcats are getting the respect they deserve. They're 0-2. No one's really talking about them, but they're better. They're a better football team than 0-2 would indicate, and L.A. is going to improve. They also have the best receiver in the league, Nelson Spruce. He had two touchdowns on Sunday. He had six catches for 89 yards. I love him. Nelson Spruce is great. Josh Johnson is great. I love L.A.'s coach, Winston Moss. He's taken over the defense. 
And the defense made some big plays on Sunday against Landry Jones, the quarterback in Dallas. They got him confused a couple times. They got a couple turnovers. Again, LA's 0-2, but I would not give up on them just yet. They're going to win some games. And I think, you know, the way the playoffs work in the XFL is that two teams in the East and two teams in the West get a playoff game. The two, the two winners of that playoff game play each other in the championship. Either Dallas or LA will represent the East in the playoffs. It'll be Houston and then Dallas or LA. And LA has a chance to beat out Dallas and make it into the playoffs. I would not discount LA right now. They're bad. They're 0-2. They had a bad start. But the LA Wildcats are better than people are giving them credit for. Josh Johnson's really good. They got a great offensive coordinator, great receiver. A defense is getting better that does create turnovers. Don't discount the LA Wildcats. They are not the worst team in the league, even though they haven't won a game yet. Keep your attention on them. They will continue to get better. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. Uh, That's all I have for today. I do want to end the show with this one segment. I do it every single episode. Uh, Whether you know, you may know, you may not know, four years ago, my younger brother took his life. He committed suicide. And through that experience, I learned two really painful lessons. Number one is that if you're struggling, please go get help. Uh, My brother never told anybody he was having a hard time. He suffered in silence. He never reached out and shared his problems or anything he was dealing with. One day I came home and he was dead on the floor. And that's awful. I really encourage you, if you're having a hard time, don't suffer in silence. Tell other people about your struggles. Reach out. Get help from somebody. Uh, I am inclined, you know, there's a strong, strong suggestion that it's, you should, you know, say the suicide hotline. If you're going to talk about suicide publicly in the media, they want you to put up the suicide hotline. So I'm going to tell you that the suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255. The suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255. If you need it, use it. If you need it, and I, I really what I hope you do, though, if you're having a hard time, Talk to a human being. If you have nobody else, call the hotline. It's, it's a good resource. It's better than nothing. But talk to a person in your life. Talk to a counselor, a teacher, somebody you can trust, somebody with an authority figure. Go get help from somebody you trust. Don't suffer in silence. That's the number one takeaway. If you're having a hard time, please go get help from somebody. But number two, let me talk to other people. This is the second painful lesson I learned when my brother died is that, man, make sure the people in your life know how much you love them how much you care about them. Tell them you love them. Tell them you care about them. Uh, I saw my brother constantly. We worked together. We played Halo together. We, were, uh, we played football together. And him and I had very shallow conversations. We talked about girls and sports and movies and video games. And we never really had in-depth conversations where I said, hey man, how are you doing? How, I love you. Let me give you a hug. We were not very vulnerable as, as friends and as brothers. And so I encourage you, man, make sure the people in your life know how much you care about them, know how much you love them. Tell them you love them. Don't be afraid to be vulnerable. Don't be afraid to have conversations with a little bit more depth that goes a long way and make sure the people in your life understand how much you care about them and that if they're having a hard time, the door is open. They can reach out to you. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. Thank you so very much for tuning in. It's been a long episode. It's been a great episode, though. Hope you have a great day. Bam, we are done.